It is the 200 level episode 87 from the basement. Mike Carpenter here. And the reason that we did not have a second episode last week is because I redesigned the studio, which in short, I brought some new furniture down here and made it a little bit more cool looking, a little bit more comfortable and cozy. To give you a little bit of a clue of our furniture situation beforehand, it was a patio set. So chairs and a table that are meant for outdoors that we had set up downstairs in this corner to record on. Now, before that, it had been this old couch that we never used in this Papazon. I think that's what you say, Papazon chair that I would sit in. And, you know, we're upgrading gradually. What we ended up doing in the midst of all this quarantine is getting a few new things for our front porch. And we had a new coffee table thing for our living room area. So that allowed me to bring down some actual furniture to the studio. And yeah, no, I didn't rig anything different in terms of electronics. No. So when I say I renovated the studio, essentially I brought down a new table and chairs. But then I spruced it up a little bit too. So we're sitting down here with this new studio set up for a week in which we will have three episodes. Here's what we have today. Trevor and Harry, as usual, for the Last Dance recap and anything else that we decide to talk about, which normally these go off the rails a little bit. Then on Wednesday, we are happy to welcome back co-host Emeritus Steve Breitweiser. He and I spoke yesterday, so Sunday afternoon, about all things Illini football and basketball. And it was the first time that we had talked other than a few texts back and forth, the first time that we had spoken since the relaunch of the 200 level when Steve came down here at the end of August 2019 for a bit of a football preview slash, you know, Brad Underwood's state of the program show. And we titled that a most consequential year. Now, little did we know everything that would go into this year, sports or otherwise, but all the things that have happened since August. Somehow, Steve and I, we hit record, and it's as if we have done this show week in, week out since then. And I was thinking about the relationship that Steve and I have had dating back to what would have been the summer of 2013. And Stevie had mentioned to me over that summer that we needed a Saturday morning football show, and would you like to try something out? And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. Now, none of us had really high expectations for Tim Beckman going into year two, but it was still a cool idea, and I really relished the opportunity to branch out and host a show outside of just helping on T&J. And Brightweiser was a name that Stevie, to his credit, was the first name he thought of. Got us in touch, and we met at Legends, and sort of talked over the kind of show that we wanted to have. And very quickly, I found out that his sense of humor and mine mesh perfectly. And I say all that, like there's something about Steve's sense of humor that if I were to tell you what he said word for word, you may not find it funny in and of itself, but it's the delivery and this sort of dry wit that he has that I'm still trying to catch up with. So it was a really cool talk that Steve and I had, and we will have that for you on Wednesday morning. Friday, guest to be determined. We're working on a couple things, one of which I'm really excited, but also I'm not going to say anything until it actually happens. Because for me, this guest that I'm working on, it would be a major coup. It's an actor from one of my favorite shows, and I'm, I'm really efforting this as hard as I can. But that's the tricky thing about booking is, I learned this with sales, you don't really want to reach out to someone more than once a week. You don't want to be that annoying guy. So that's what I do. I set a one message per week limit. I'm not going to chase any more than that and hoping that we might actually land this guest this week. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but regardless, we'll have a third show for you on Friday. That'll make up for the one show that we had last week. 
Before we get any further, I want to remind you that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe. You can order online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices. And best of all, they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. So whether that's custom zones where you can put any topping that you want to in it, well, most any topping. I don't know if they have every single thing that you want, but they have like 60 different options. Or one of their favorites like a buffer zone or Maui Wowie. Order online at dpdoe.com. No better time than now to have a hot, steamy calzone delivered right to your doorstep. You can stay at home, shelter in place. They'll bring it to you, dpdoe.com. Also, State Farm agent Brian Hansen. Online at brianismyguy.com, Trevor's favorite domain name in the world, and for good reason. And not only are the folks over at State Farm Agent Brian Hansen's office insurance experts, but they're all local products. They're all Champaign-Urbana people that have your local interest at heart. So it could be auto, home, renters, business, you name it. State Farm Agent Brian Hansen, they have you covered. Online at brianismyguy.com. And finally, 4th and Kirby, online at 4 com. Coupon code 200LEVEL will get you 10% off your order. And not only that, if you order two shirts, you get one free. This is a deal that goes on 365 days a year over there. Two shirts, get one free at fourthandkirby.com and supplement that awesome deal with coupon code 200 level or the 200 level. Either one of those works. Fourthandkirby.com. Also, Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. That's the formalities as we get into episode 87. And recap episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance, or more to the point, the entire documentary, which is an impressive achievement. Ten parts, over eight hours of material. And somehow, with the wide scope that they took of the Bulls dynasty and the Michael Jordan story itself, it was cohesive. It all felt like one whole that you could still watch episode by episode. And it's going to have a lot of rewatchability, I think, that... You know, maybe in a few months, sometime during the summer, would be something that I would revisit, do an episode per day sort of thing. Out of all the documentaries I've seen, sports documentaries first off, it would be hard to say that this is better than the OJ Made in America documentary. And I know that's an apples and oranges comparison. This was something that was made for entertainment, more so than OJ Made in America, which while immensely entertaining, was just as much a social commentary as it was a sports documentary. The depth with which O.J. Made in America got into not just the murder, but the whole racial relations going on in Los Angeles. And really, O.J.'s story is a black man growing up in America, but not always black enough, according to the African-American community. All, all the interesting complexities that, as this white guy living in central Illinois, I can't relate to, but was able to learn a lot about while watching that documentary. If you have not seen O.J. Made in America... Watch it. It is incredible. And it gripped me more than The Last Dance. I would get done with part one of OJ Made in America. Each one of those was about two hours and immediately want to watch the next one. And while I had that with The Last Dance, I did notice that as each Sunday came and went, the anticipation dissipated just a bit. And that's no fault of the filmmakers. It's no fault of Michael Jordan, who himself is one of the most fascinating characters that you could make a documentary about. But there was a bit of, okay, we've watched it. That was great. I'm going to take a break from it and then revisit this maybe down the road. OJ Made in America was something that has stayed with me since I watched it and, again, cannot recommend it enough. This also speaks to ESPN and the 30 for 30 Productions' ability to turn out quality documentaries. And it started off, I don't even know what the first documentary was in that series, but I do recall when ESPN was promoting it, and it was a Bill Simmons thing, and thinking, well, that's a cool idea, but little did I know, and probably little did they know when they started this, that documentaries would become the cool thing to watch. 
Netflix, they've cornered the market on crime documentaries or crazy documentaries like Tiger King. And ESPN, they found their niche with this, and the production value is incredible. The editing for the amount of material archival footage that they would have to use in this, the editing is flawless. So, you know, from a filmmaker's perspective, entertaining, informative, occasionally revelatory. Not maybe as revelatory as I thought it would be. And this might be because I've consumed so much Michael Jordan information and stories and kind of folk tales that have developed over the years about Michael Jordan, the player, and Michael Jordan, the myth. So a lot of the things that we learned in this documentary, if you're a casual basketball fan, you probably thought, wow, that's amazing. To me, last night, one of the biggest surprises, I guess, was that it was the food poisoning game and not the flu game. Hardly revelatory. Interesting fact. Interesting tidbit. Food poisoning game doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But all that aside, even though there weren't a ton of moments that made me go, whoa, I had no idea about that. It was riveting and nostalgic. And it took me back to a time in the 90s when, think about this run as a sports fan. The Bulls win from 91 through 98, six out of eight seasons. And for me, it was more the second three-peat that really resonated. I distinctly remember John Paxson hitting the three against the Suns, far more so than I remember the Bulls-Blazers series. That, to me, is very fuzzy, and I honestly don't remember the Bulls-Lakers series. I know I was watching it. We were as a family, but I don't remember that. The second three-peat, though, and really Jordan's return, Space Jam coming out. I'm a 10-year-old kid. The perfect age to be swept up in this Bulls mania that... Being two hours away from Chicago, it felt like it was within reach. You know, it was the biggest thing in the world. It's as if the Beatles had arrived in America again in terms of Beatlemania, Bulls, and all the attention they got. There was that comparison made last night by Linda Cohn that said, what, Jerry Krause is essentially Yoko Ono. And the Beatles were Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman. I thought that was a somewhat apt comparison. And being only two hours away from it, it felt... Within reach, it felt like, wow, the coolest thing is happening essentially in our backyard. And we would watch every game, not every play of every game, but I do recall watching especially the home games and making sure we tuned in in time for the starting lineups. And we would turn down all the lights in the family room, and there was this Fisher-Price flashlight that had three different colors that I would use and change the colors and have the lights going around the room. We would turn up the speaker system super loud to Alan Parsons Project and Ray Clay, just the best PA voice that you could think of. And that was what we did. That was a tradition in terms of watching the games and getting to know the game of basketball a little bit. I don't know about that. I've always been much more of a macro viewer of sports where if you ask me the nuances of basketball, I probably couldn't tell you. If you ask me to diagram what the triangle offense looks like or how it operates, I couldn't do it. And in that regard, sports and especially that Bulls run were much more about entertainment and also recognizing even at that young age that I was watching something great. You know, Michael Jordan, even though it was familiar to us at my young age of 10, 11, 12 years old, I still recognize that I was probably watching the greatest basketball player and for that matter, the greatest athlete ever. So it was cool to be swept up in that. And I distinctly remember certain things from that second three-peat, the food poisoning game, as it will now be dubbed, being one of them. And thinking as an 11-year-old kid, I think I was 11 at that time, 10 or 11, wow, you know, this is heroic stuff. Of course, there's all the conspiracy theories about that being a hangover. And we'll get into this with Trevor and Harry because I thought it was very convenient that Tim Grover, the personal trainer for Jordan, and then his best friend whose name escapes me, 
And even his mom, they had the story down. Yeah, these five guys, they came to the door with the pizza, and hmm, that was a little bit fishy, and I'm thinking, huh? Okay, it seems to me like back in middle school, you get into trouble with your friends, and before you meet with the principal, you get your story straight. And you make sure that everybody has the story down to a T, and you're just hoping that when one of your friends goes in, he doesn't blow your cover. But regardless, the food poisoning game, as it will now be known, was incredible to watch. And Game 6 at home, closing it out like they did, was awesome. And then finally, 98, you can't end any better than that final shot against Russell. That day, still in my mind, it was a Sunday. We went to go see Truman Show, a matinee. It's the voice 16 of Truman Show. Went to an EI baseball game, and it was either in Buckley. It might have been in Gifford, actually, now that I think about it. And knowing the game six awaited that night, that we were so ready for it, I think it was probably a seven o'clock tip. We get back home. I remember my parents let me get a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. I mean, it was a perfect day for an 11, 12-year-old kid. And it ends with Jordan making that shot. And also knowing that this was probably the last we would see of it because often dinner table conversations with our family would revolve around either Illinois basketball or Bulls. We didn't talk about the Yankees so much because my mom and sister weren't quite as into it. My dad would try to convince my sister that the Yankees were the greatest franchise in sports history, and she wasn't really having it. She was too swept up in the Bulls thing to really give that its credence. But we would definitely be talking basketball. And the narrative throughout that year, as we saw in the Last Dance documentary, was this is probably it. I know that at the end of this documentary, at the end of episode 10, Jordan says, absolutely, I would have come back. And we would have convinced the guys to all sign one-year contracts, whatever it would have been. And that may very well be true. But there's a part of me, and this reminds me of the story of Led Zeppelin. So to bring music and sports and meld them together. Led Zeppelin, unfortunately, ended in 1980 after John Bonham died, right? Death by misadventure. He dies, Led Zeppelin's over, and we don't see what they would have done in the 80s. But in terms of legacy, and I would much prefer, trust me, John Bonham to be alive and Led Zeppelin to still be active today. But in terms of their legacy, it was secure. You know, it was a decade of the most amazing hard rock discography of any band of all time. And they will take their place in the pantheon of greatest bands of all time. And it will never be relinquished. They never made a string of bad albums in the 80s, which I'm telling you, they probably would have. Or Jimmy Page would have died from heroin, something like that. They, they were in bad shape. It was coming to an end. It resolved itself, though, with some factors outside of their control. And when I think of the Bulls in 1998, yes, there were outside external factors that led to that thing ending potentially prematurely. But on the other hand, it did feel even back then to an extent that it had run its course. I don't remember being super brokenhearted when the news began to trickle out that Pippen was traded. Jordan for sure wasn't coming back. Phil Jackson for sure was not coming back because this had been building up for a long time and it seemed inevitable. Maybe it wasn't, as Jordan was, was alluding to, even though Phil Jackson seemed to push back a little bit on that notion in episode 10 and essentially say, listen, it was our time. It was our time and we were over and what a run. And because of that, you cannot write a more perfect ending for that dynasty. Six titles in eight years. I don't think they would have won eight out of eight. You know, all, the, the whole story from the retirement to the coming back, it's perfect in a way. And it only serves to further the narrative that Jordan is the greatest athlete of all time. And on top of that, may have the greatest story of all the greatest athletes that ever lived. I mean, certainly Muhammad Ali had the social activist component that makes him a very special figure, not just in sports history, but American history. 
Jordan in terms of a sports narrative. You don't get much better than that. The comeback and the triumph. And then ending on a high note. We can conveniently ignore the whole Wizards thing because I... It didn't matter to me that much when he came back. It felt like a random coda, and if he wants to play a few more games, fine. But I, even when that news came out in 2001, I was not going to allow it to taint what he had done with the Bulls. And I don't think many have, if any. So what a fantastic documentary. It took me back on this nostalgic trip and also to a place in the 90s where championships seemed, for me, inevitable. I was spoiled. We get six out of eight for the Bulls. Feels like they're going to win it any year that Jordan is there for all 82 games. They're going to win it, right? That was a foregone conclusion in my mind as a kid. And then the Yankees win it in 96, 98, 99, 2000. Illinois basketball winning Big Ten titles in 2001, 2002, 2004, 2005. Make a Final Four in 2005. What a run. Yankees won it in 2009, and then the last decade has sort of been whatever, but I was spoiled so much as a young fan that maybe this last decade of mediocrity to just outright bad is, I had it coming. I probably had it coming when all said and done. So what a run though. And is there a better time for your team to be good than as a kid and an early teenager? For me, the switch really flipped on probably age eight, nine, 10. I'd throw temper tantrums if the team that I was rooting for lost a game. Many times where my parents had to say, you got to calm down. It's game two of a 162-game season for the Yankees. They're going to be okay. But at that age, you start to care. And I cared about the Bulls winning those championships and the losses they would have. That Indiana series. I mean, I have a nail-biting problem in general. But back then, the 98 series against the Pacers, especially that Sunday of game seven, where in the fourth quarter, they're trailing. They're losing at home to the Pacers in game seven. I'm watching in the playroom upstairs, which is a room above the garage, and thinking, oh my God, this might end. It didn't. Bulls pulled away, and then all was right with the world, right? I, I didn't even stop to really consider what it would feel like if the Bulls had lost that game. But when they would lose a game in the NBA Finals, to the Jazz especially, it was frustrating. I'm thinking, why can't this just be a four-game sweep? Why can't this be easy? Well, it wasn't easy, as we found out. And as much as I look back on that time, and I know in the moment it felt predestined, that the Bulls were going to win those championships. They felt predestined that the Yankees were going to win the World Series every single year. It's not easy. And it makes you appreciate championships, or really for that matter, just success all the more. To the point where the Illinois basketball season that we just saw, they didn't win a Big Ten title. Technically, they didn't even make the tournament, but that's outside of our control. And yet, so many moments from that season, and the season in general, will go up there as one of my favorites because as time has went on, I've grown to appreciate the fact that you don't need to win a championship every year. That's the goal. But it's really about the memories and the moments along the way. And for me, I'm collecting moments. I think about sports and I think about concerts, sports and music. And for me, the reason that I gravitate towards those things more than, I don't know, cars, I guess. You know, Some people have a passion for cars. Some people have a passion for gaming computers, software, things like that. For me, sports and concerts give me experiences. And I log those experiences and I remember vivid details about them. Even those experiences where I probably partied a little bit too hard. Somehow I still remember so many vivid details from it. And I log them in my memory bank and it stays with me forever. And I may or may not have pictures of all those experiences, but I got the memories. And that's what it's all about is accruing experiences that I will remember for the rest of my life. You can't take it with you, right? Every day that goes by, 
in this short life, and this is maybe my manifesto, I guess, the reason I go to so many Dave Matthews Band concerts, or the reason that if you two's out on tour, I'm going to five shows, even though they probably play the same set list for the most part every single show. It's because I don't know when this ends. None of us know when this all ends. And certainly this is being driven home even more by the COVID-19 thing. So while I'm here, I'm going to go to as many games as I can. I'm going to go to as many concerts as I can and log these memories. Because when it's all said and done, and hopefully it's at a ripe old age of 95, and I'm on my deathbed and just kind of looking back on everything, I'll have so many things to look back on. That's my goal. More than accruing material, it is accruing experiences and logging those and letting that be, I don't know about legacy, that's a strong word, but letting that be what I fall back on when it's all said and done and experiencing those things with friends and family. So that's why The Last Dance in totality, the nostalgic trip was amazing. It reminded all of us how badly we miss sports and dare I say need them. It's a great equalizer. And as we sit here on May 18th, as I record this opening segment, hoping beyond hope that maybe at the end of this week, we get some resolution about baseball starting again, that we get through the summer months and it looks like football may actually happen. All these things that, you know, I could easily revert back to, nah, it ain't going to happen. But I think I need to actually flip that switch and say, no, it is going to happen. I need that. I need that just like I need the idea that Oxford is going to release the coronavirus vaccine this fall and things are going to be good to go by Christmas time. Everyone's going to feel comfortable hanging out with everybody else again. You know, I, I need to hold on to those things and I'll cross the bridge when we get there if those things in fact do not happen. But as you get into two plus months of shelter in place and not being able to hang out with friends whenever you want to and not being able to go places whenever you want to, it is something that I need and I think we all need to an extent. We need to have that hope Sports are such a big part of that. I mean, hell, this weekend, beautiful day on Saturday, went over to my parents' house, social distance, of course, my parents, my sister, and me, the family unit, the same one that back in the day would have been talking about all these Bulls games at the dinner table, and sitting there for a couple hours on what was a gorgeous Saturday afternoon, and it wasn't weird at all. In fact, it's sort of like when I talk to friends on Zoom. It could be months, and yet when you see them again, you pick up right where you left off, and that's what we did. So I think the transition back into these things that we look forward to, it's going to be smoother than we anticipated. Even if that means watching sports on TV for a while instead of going to the stadium, it's going to feel normal. It's going to feel right. And just think, hopefully a year from now, right? Hopefully a year from now as we're getting ready for summer concert season 2021, and I got Rage Against the Machine and The Stones and Dave Matthews Band and Smashing Pumpkins. I got all these bands on the docket that we will be able to look forward to things just as we did before. I need to hold on to that. I know it helps me get through this COVID-19 thing. And the last answer is a really good equalizer. Kind of helped me recalibrate and remember why I care about these things in the first place. All right, so it is with great sadness that we are having our final Last Dance podcast with Trevor Valise and Harry Black. But I was thinking, guys, as my voice goes exceedingly high right there, that was weird. I was thinking about how, as we go forward, certainly The Last Dance has been a nice thing to talk about, but we did discuss briefly in our text thread yesterday doing a weekly thing on like Sunday afternoons or something, just kind of shooting the breeze, as they say. So uh, we'll, we'll get that going. But in the meantime, to start off this discussion, what was your favorite moment of the entire 10-part 
miniseries? Or if not that specific, what weekend, what two-parter do you think resonated the most with you or was the peak of what we saw, Trevor? Hmm. Okay, I'm thinking of a couple. I don't know if there was a specific moment in episode four, but I specifically remember really enjoying it. That was after the Rodman episode, correct? Uh, Episode four focused on the bad boys thing. So Rodman in episode three transitioning into the bad boys. Yeah. And I'm not sure if there was like a specific moment in that episode, but I remember until we hit episode seven and eight thinking that episode four was my favorite. Okay. Uh, Obviously there's the moment at the end of episode seven, which is probably going to be the one most uh, replayed and referenced where he talks about the cost of winning and, you know, he tears up. Uh, um, and then, oddly enough, I really, really enjoyed the Steve Kerr sequence last night. I know mm-hmm. it was like 10 minutes, and some people are probably going, oh, God, Steve Kerr, do we really need to do this? But the way they tied it back into then, you know, Michael showing that he's not always the one who takes a shot. He gives it to Kerr, who makes a shot to win the title. I just thought that was really well done. And for, I don't know, for some reason, I thought the way they produced that and transitioned that was perfect. Yeah, it was a little bit on the nose, and I know that the timeline got some criticism. I personally enjoyed the way that they framed it with 98 and were doing the jump backs because I think— I got used to it by the time we were, you know, to, to last night. Yeah, there there was a little adjustment period, but I think by the second weekend, I got what they were doing. And it would have been, I think, far more arduous to get through it chronologically— where the last six episodes are 1998, and then, you know, so I I think that the way they did that was perfect. But to me, I agree, Trevor. I think that transition from the 10 minutes of the Kerr thing, talking about both of their dads and the loss that they experienced, and I did not, revelations, there were not a ton of them in this 10-hour documentary, but Kerr's dad, I I did not know that story. It was, I mean, it's messed up to say the least. And uh, you see that, you know, he even spoke to it. He clearly doesn't have the amount of talent that Jordan has necessarily, but that he had no choice in his own mind. He had no choice but to just double and triple down on playing sports, letting that be his release and becoming the best player he could. Going from a guy that got a late scholarship offer to Arizona, said, what the hell, I'll take it without even visiting and then becoming a NBA lifer. And one of the best shooters in NBA history, and now one of the best coaches. Harry, what well, about that's you? That's the thing. That now, oh, sorry, now he's the coach. Like, no, just now he's the coach of like one of the best teams ever. Yeah, I mean, that's right. a pretty damn good run he's on. He has a pretty good resume, and you, people forget that he um, after the Bulls, like the year after he was with the Bulls, who did he get picked up by? Spurs. Oh yeah, the Spurs, and he won. Uh, what was it? Two, I think, two championships there. He won one. In '99, and then he beat the uh, the Jets or the Jets, the Nets, <laughs> the New Jersey Nets. Come on, that that's that. You can see the slip up there, New Jersey Nets, New York Jets. Um, but yeah, he beats them in '03. I actually, as much as I was making fun of the fact yesterday, oh, what do we have? Do we need to have a coup coach and a Steve Kerr and a uh, you know a Paxton segment? I know we didn't have a Paxton segment, um, but yeah, as much as I was making fun of that, I did enjoy the Steve Kerr segment of it last night um episodes five and six were like the dream team and kukoc right yeah those were five and six yeah those for me that was the only part of the series where i kind of felt it was dragging a little bit but for the most part i had no problem with most of it um and then i would say for me i love the episodes last night i liked episodes seven and eight i'm not going to fall into the trap of saying, oh, this weekend was the best yet, because I feel like we say that every single week we're prisoners of the moment. If I were to look back at the entire thing in hindsight, I would probably say that the, my favorite sequence or favorite episodes were either, I, lo- I like the start, 
I like the start because you get going. You're starting to hear. You're starting to learn more about Michael Jordan than a lot of us actually knew about him. Starting to hear about uh, how his competitive nature is different from a lot of players in the NBA at the time and how it is now. And it kind of set the tone for the rest of the documentary. Uh, uh, and then after that, I probably I liked the episodes last night. I'm not going to say that I didn't just because they happened so recently, but I would say last night and last weekend, episodes seven, eight. Seven, eight, nine, and ten, I think, kind of run together, and I think are all like up there <clears throat> as far. I'd actually put those. <clears throat> oh no! I know, right? <laughs> I'd actually put those four in uh, in their own little block. Uh, but I would say I probably like the start of it the most. Then these last couple episodes. The middle, I felt like it dragged a little bit, but overall, obviously, a fantastic series. I'm actually going to now ask you guys to rank all episodes from worst ah! to best. Well, no, I'm kidding. So I, I would agree with this, that the 7, 8, 9, 10, the last two weekends, I think, I'm trying to think of a moment in any of those episodes where I was gradually <clears throat> losing interest. I did not have any of that the last two weekends. I would say the Rodman episode was maybe the most underwhelming, and I think that that speaks a little bit to the, I guess, quote, controversial take by Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosillo a few weeks ago where they said, you know, the Rodman shtick, it is what it is, but when you live through it and then you see the interviews and realize that the directors had to choose like the five most coherent lines that he said to even make it into the film, but the rest of it was just gibberish. Yeah, the Rodman thing was underwhelming, but it would be interesting to go back and then what a journey. I mean, I think back to episodes one and two and literally five weeks ago when that aired. And if I were to watch that again, I think I would be reminded, wow, they really did set this up well. And then if I got to the middle episodes, especially four, I would think, God, they really get in the meat of the Jordan story. But the last two weekends to me really captured the moments of that Bulls run that I remember. And it was the second three, Pete, not the first. I was too young to remember a lot of that. And Let's start then with the biggest revelation I had last night, minor as it may be. It is not the flu game. It is the food poisoning game, but I pose this to you. I'm thinking that the way that Tim Grover and Jordan's best friend told this story, Trevor, it seemed hmm, oddly specific, and they seemed to have all their details down to the right. It reminded me, as I said in the opening segment... <laughs> of four kids in elementary or middle school. They get in trouble, but they get their story straight before they talk to the principal. And even Jordan's mom was in on it. I get, I just envision her sending Jordan a text, something like, I'm never going to lie for you again, or don't ever ask for me to lie for you again. I'm thinking, okay, pizza late at night, I can buy it. But I understand out of all the conspiracy theories why that one still kind of rings true. Why, okay, really? Food poisoning from a late night Salt Lake City pizza joint with five dudes that somehow knew this was Michael Jordan's room? I don't know. The whole thing is definitely weird in the sense that it's the only place open in Salt Lake. You know, and I don't know what it was like in the 90s. There's clearly not Uber. But, you know, then five, I'm picturing like five guys, you know, kind of seedily dressed showing up to the door. Here's your pizza, sir. It's like, I, I'm not saying I don't believe it, but it is kind of weird. And he, he ate a whole pizza himself the night before game six of the NBA finals. <laughs> well, I mean, damn. Well, they, um, they had, uh, the, the director of the documentary on the, um, on Jalen and Jacoby podcast. And he actually said some things that were not in the documentary for some reason. I don't know why they brought, they didn't bring this up. Yeah. The there's one of these. that's pretty cool or kind of nasty. It's pretty nasty. Yeah. Is that, um, is that Jordan, they, they ordered food, uh, the guys that he was with ordered food and ate without him first. 
And after he did, after they did that, he was obviously pissed off. He said, um, "Let's uh, or, or, order me a pizza. I'm, I'm hungry. You know, you guys didn't eat with me. You ate." So he me. did it to spite them. <laughs> no, no, he did it because he was. He, That's he, what he um, does. Well, I guess so. But when it got there, when the pizza got there, um, he said, "No one is going to touch this pizza. You guys ate without me." Um, the, the idea that it's a whole pizza, I can buy that. I've eaten multiple pizzas when I played and when I, my metabolism was higher. You can down one in like 30 minutes. Um, but what he did was, as soon as it got there, he spit on the entire thing so no one else <laughs> would touch it. Oh, and, yeah, man. Yeah, so so I definitely buy that. The idea that it was the why only Why didn't they say place, that? I don't know why they didn't say it in the documentary. But I think they huh. should have. Um, the director said he said so afterwards on, on the podcast, though. Um, the other aspect of it is that they weren't in Salt Lake City. They were on the outskirts, like like outside of Salt Lake City, uh, in the middle of Podum, Utah, nowhere, where stuff isn't open at you know at ten thirty at night. They found one pizza joint on the outskirts, um, and and so they you know ordered what he wanted. And then the other aspect of it is uh, because they weren't in the city, they were kind of on the outskirts. The idea was. He uh, or a pizza was ordered from the phone in the in the hotel room. It's a small town. Maybe the owner of the hotel or something or someone in the hotel uh, at the call, you know, was able. I, I forget. The, no, no. They had the, the hotel call the, the pizza place. And when they said the room number, maybe the hotel manager said something to the effect of, hey, that's Jordan's room. So everyone wanted to mm-hmm. come up. And maybe then see, you know, peek at their head and see, hey, is that Michael Jordan? Hey, is that Michael Jordan? Um, I, I do, but I don't buy the idea that it was the hangover game, which is a lot of things people say. I could see it being food poisoning. I could see it being, um, I, I thought it was food poisoning before this. I had always heard about the pizza. Um, but yeah, I, I could see it being food poisoning. I don't know if it was a spiked pizza. That's that's the tipping point right there. Yeah, and also, let's keep in mind, we're going to get drunk in Salt Lake City. Not really known exactly. for its nightlife, so the hangover game, I know. It's, it's a funny conspiracy theory, and to me, whatever it was that that was his illness, even if it was a hangover, it makes the performance all the more remar- remarkable, whether it's flu, f- uh, food poisoning, hangover, the fact that he went out there yeah. 44 minutes, uh, 38 points, I think, in 44 minutes. And I remember distinctly watching that game. And even at that young age, you you sometimes recognize, okay, I'm watching an all-timer right now. Like, I'm watching an all-time moment. And I certainly remember that being one of them. And I even recall Bob Costas at the start of the broadcast saying, Michael Jordan with flu-like symptoms. He's been up since 3.30. I think Ahmad, Ahmad Rashad was giving the report at the start of that game and thinking, you know, I don't know. I, I He might be sick, but there's just something... It felt like something, even through the TV screen, that we were about to watch something pretty cool that night. And that, out of all the Jazz Bulls games, and yes, Game 6 in 1998 was special, but the food poisoning game is the one that always sticks with me. But I was reminded just how tough the Jazz were. They weren't the greatest team, but they talked about the bad matchups with Stockton and Carl Malone, but the toughest matchup of all was the Pacers. And Trevor, you had said, I think, in the text thread that, you know... You didn't know the extent to which the Pacers took the Bulls in that series and how tough it was. And I actually misspoke in our text thread yesterday. I said games five and six weren't close. I think Reggie Miller essentially had another buzzer beater in game six. But they did skip over that probably for time. That's how tough that series was. And a really balanced Pacers team that 
that's the closest I ever felt, Trevor, to this thing's going to end. And to hear Jordan even acknowledge that is, uh, and Phil Jackson say, yeah, we got to consider the fact we may lose this game. I thought that was a, a cool bit of honesty from those guys. Yeah, I didn't really think about the fact that in that moment, everybody knew, thanks to Jerry Krause, that this was the end. And of course, in hindsight, you think, well, that's perfect because I know that the end ended with a ring. But in that moment, you were, what, 48 minutes away from it ending in a loss to the Pacers. And I don't really necessarily think about it that way until I'm watching it that way last night. Because again, as I've said before, something like that is basically just me watching a movie. Because I had zero idea what happened in this Pacers series when episode eight ended and they were tipping up the ball and, you know, they said something to the effect of like, and we had no idea what we were in store for. I'm like, I don't either. I'm excited to see it because I genuinely had no idea what, what happened in that series. I reacted as if I were a fan at the end of what was that game? Was that game three where Reggie hit that shot? Game and three. Then was game game four. four to tie it up. Okay. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because game three was the roadblock, as Jordan called it. Pacers didn't take too kindly to that. And then Reggie yeah. with the big shot in game And just four. everything about the end of that game was so interesting to me. I mean, Reggie getting that shot off, but kind of like shoving Jordan away from him in order to clear enough space to get that shot off. Scotty Larry missing the free Bird's, throws. Larry Bird's reaction, which was just so... I, if you want to you know, encapsulate another moment that is telling about how amazing Michael Jordan is, the coach of the team that just hit basically the game-winning shot looks more afraid than he does excited because he knows that with 0.7 seconds left on the clock, he could still lose. And he was inches away from still losing as that shot rimmed out. I just, I don't know. I watched all that and I'm like, oh, I missed it because I, I, I haven't seen any of it. I was watching it as a fan. So that was kind of fun. What? I thought there was one play and maybe it wasn't against the Bulls where Reggie Miller hit a, like a half court buzzer beater or something like a double clutch half court buzzer beater it might have been in the early earlier in the in the 1990s but that that's the one i thought they were going to show so then when they showed him push off a jordan like that which i know that's not maybe the right you know that should should have been a call or whatever i have no problem with that not being a call i see that as a guy playing in a physical era making a physical play that probably jordan himself would have done you know so that that I thought I thought that was cool because kind of like you, Trevor, I didn't know that was exactly what the shot was going to be. As I'm looking this up, Game Six, which they did not cover, it was a 92 to 89 Pacers win. And if I go to the play-by-play, I'll see if if Reggie in fact hit the game-winning shot. But I had forgotten how close that game was. Game Five was a bit of a blowout for the Bulls, and at that point, I remember thinking. As this is going on, okay, well, we'll close it out in six. No big deal. It was what what happened a lot in these Bulls series. Same with the uh, Seattle SuperSonics in '96. Bulls take a two nothing lead at home, and then the other team gets a couple token wins. But you know that the Bulls are going to be fine. This was the first time against the Pacers where it was like, oh, well, maybe it's not going to be fine. And it looks like uh, Reggie was good in the fourth quarter. There wasn't a buzzer beater in Game Six, so I, I see why they skipped that. Uh, one of my favorite moments last night is after Game Seven. And Jordan and Bird see each other, and yeah. it's just an acknowledgement, like, yeah, you got me. And, and you know, profanity, flying, which was one of my favorite parts. I know that's so sophomoric of me, but I loved all the profanity in the series. And just to a genuine interaction between two competitors, and somehow after even the toughest of losses, they these pro athletes seem to have this uncanny ability to just move on. Like Carl yeah, Malone coming up. Yeah, I don't know how if I'm Larry in that situation, 
I mean, I personally, you know, maybe a minute and 30 seconds after my game, after my team being eliminated in game seven would not necessarily have been able to sit there and take the player that just single-handedly beat me, cussing me out, telling me to go on the golf course, blah, blah, blah. I'd, I'd, I'd probably be a little PO'd at that, but somehow he's able to just go, uh, all right, thanks, Michael, and walk off. And I'm like, wow. Harry, I got a question. This is a general sports question because as a fan, you know, my team loses. I get all bummed, like, you know, Bears-Eagles being a more recent example of uh, actually feeling into the next day that pit in the stomach uh, feeling. Uh, but when you're an athlete, and to me, I think part of it as a fan is I have no control over it, and that should make it easier, but in some ways it makes it more difficult to get over things because I don't have control over it. So as an athlete, is it the toughest of losses you've ever faced? on any team that you played for. Is there an ability as an athlete to just sort of turn off the switch and say, well, you know, we, we played and we lost and that's how it goes. I mean, is that something an athlete can do easier? I mean, it's different. It, it depends on what kind of game it was. I mean, the toughest game I've ever had to deal with was in a situation where I couldn't just come back the next day or even the next year and change anything about it because it was – uh, my last game of my senior year in high school was <clears throat> was a uh, the game before the state championship where we lost to a team we had already beaten earlier that year. So in that situation, it's you can't come back next week. You can't come back next year. It's absolutely it's done. But in a situation, another game that maybe I would maybe point to uh, the year before that when I was a junior in the middle of the season, we lost to a team that we were supposed to beat handily and they actually beat us by a couple scores in a situation like that, where you're just thinking, wow, we got it handed to us. You, you are able to kind of come back the next day. It would happen on Friday. So then uh, in high school, you come back on Monday and you come back and it's easy. You, you come back, you, you talk about what you did wrong. You just get ready for the team the next week. You know, there's nothing you can really do about what had happened the week before and you just you just kind of move on. Um, now going into college, there's a little bit more of an analytical point of view with it. Say uh, a game that would be really tough to deal with when I was at when I was at Illinois was the uh, the game in Lovey's last year against Purdue because that was a game that we thought we should have won. That's a game where we had a lot of plays that if one of them goes our way, we got it. If Chase makes that field goal. Um, if maybe we don't fumble the ball in overtime, then, then we're going to, then we're going to win that game against them. And that's one where you have to look at it. And it is a little tough seeing plays in, in, um, in film study and trying to tell yourself, wow, we had some really good plays and we still let this one get away. But after maybe a day, it stings afterwards. And then it stings after the game. And then after, you go over film study the next day and see what you could have done better. After that, you do move on. And if you look back at it, yeah, it's going to still maybe be a little bit bothersome. But at that point, you absolutely, when you're out on the field, no one really is talking about the previous game. No one's thinking about it because they notice that if you do focus on it, then all that's doing is taking away from what you need to do to get it done against whoever might be that upcoming week. You know, to that point, I was thinking too, as you were talking, how, Larry Bird seems, and that was just a very brief clip, but he seemed okay, all things considered, was able to joke with Jordan a little bit, and I'm thinking, okay, in his mind, and even some of the Pacers players were acknowledging this, that, man, you know, we 
gave them a hell of a run. And I'm thinking, like, let's say Illinois basketball, let's say there was a tournament this year, and they got to the Sweet 16, but they lose in the Sweet 16 in heartbreaking fashion to a one or two seed. Would have been bummed, but I also would have had that thing of, hey, you know, that's still a pretty impressive run for what this team was. And I get the feeling that the Pacers, as good as they were, were feeling that way because I'd seen that, according to Vegas in 1997, when they released the odds for 97-98, the Pacers had the 15th best odds to win the finals. 15th. They were considered middle of the pack because the year before they did not they did not make the NBA playoffs in 96-97. Uh, that would have been a nice bet to cash in on. They were one game away from getting there. Yeah, no kidding. So for them, it was probably that magical ride. And one recurring theme I saw, and I can't say these quotes verbatim, but Reggie said, uh, you know, we were the better team. And then he acknowledged the championship pedigree or championship DNA, as he called it. And I'm thinking there were probably four or five moments in this documentary series, Trevor, where an opponent, they begrudgingly give the Bulls their due after they say, yeah, you know, I mean, we had them. And I'm thinking, well, but no one had them. Ultimately, that that's what matters is that it, what, I wonder what it was about the Bulls that every team that got so close, they're like, ah, damn it, we were better, but we just didn't make that final shot. And I'm thinking, well, all, but you weren't. So I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I just found myself kind of struggling with that. No, I mean, I think for sure part of the um, hindsight nature of this is that no guy from a team that did really well but didn't go all the way is going to sit there and say, we were no match for them. I didn't even think like we gave them a fair fight. But it was kind of interesting because by the time you've reached, again, for me, as someone who did not experience any of this live, by the time we've reached the 98 season and we're talking about the Pacers, I feel like what Reggie said and the way the Pacers were described that was like the sixth time I'd heard some variation of that from the Pistons to the Knicks to the Jazz to the Pacers. Gary like, Payton. To your point, Don't forget Gary Payton if he would have guarded Jordan, according to him, that entire club, series. Right. But to your <laughs> point, there, there was at least five or six guys from those teams that sat down and did a similar interview where they said, you know, whether it was Patrick Ewing or, or Stockton or whoever that said, oh, man, if we just made these two plays, you know, then we would have beaten them. And it's like, you know, to your point. Well, yes, but also none of you did any of that, and the Bulls won six of eight. So, you know, in a sense, it was like when Reggie said uh, one moment last night where I was like, eh, that's kind of a hindsight documentary thing talking, was there was the jump ball after like a tied possession with what, like seven minutes and 30 seconds to yeah, go? Yeah, if game. we go up five, we win yeah, the game. Yeah, that was so <laughs> stupid. And, and Reggie, Reggie says that was the play right there. And I'm thinking you're up by three with seven minutes to go, and that was the play. Though there was, and I think Dan Bernstein talked about this, and I, I'll be anxious to lis listen to his show today because he has said multiple times the 98 Bulls Pacer series was the most intense series that he ever covered. And I think he specifically said that the loudest he ever heard United Center or Chicago Stadium, any of them, was after that jump ball and Kerr hits the three to tie it. So I could see, you know, okay. that jump ball led to the play that awoke the United Center, got it going crazy and got the Bulls feeling like, okay, well, we got this. But um, agreed. It, it's it, it just seems a little bit like, no offense, Harry, of course, Beckman saying 17 plays. It would have went the other way. We would have won. It's like, well, okay, but a lot of things still have to go right. And the, the at the end of the day, all these opponents, they didn't have Jordan. And I think that's the finality of it is we recognize that you get Reggie Miller and Gary Payton and Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson. They didn't talk to Cl Clyde Drexler, but he had a run there where he was one of the best players in the league. Charles Barkley. 
all these guys that are Hall of Famers, but not good enough. And that in other eras, they probably would have gotten those elusive rings. The the one that really kind of stuck with me um, it was the a couple episodes ago was Gary Payton saying about the Bulls team. He said, that Bulls team was a good team. Well, like, he didn't say they were a great team. He's like, they were a good team. They did a we good job. But we, but we were pretty good too. And I'm just thinking, okay. <laughs> so they were the single greatest regular season team in the history of the association. And they went up three games to nothing on you before you made a fake rally. And I'm trying to think that would be like if Tony Eason – on the 1985 Patriots, if they had come back and made that a 46 to 24 game instead of 46 to 10, saying that 85 Bears team was a good team. You know but what it you is? You know what? <laughs> we were good too. You know what it is, Harry? It's it's sort of like I'll be watching the end of a football game when I was younger. I'd watch the end of a football game or like the end of the first half, and an offense they finally get it going in the no huddle. And I'm like, well, why don't they just do that all the game, like all game long? And it's like, well, you know, the defense is also just making sure there's not a touchdown here. So it's it's sort of like it's not easy to just say, uh, well, hey, if Gary Payton would have been guarding Michael Jordan, clearly this is a different outcome. And by the way, with that series in '96, Casey Johnson is a Bulls writer, and he had he thought that essentially the Bulls lost interest. And why not? You know, you're in Seattle. You already went up 3 nothing. Worst case, you come back home game six. You close it out, which is exactly what they did. And game six was not close. Uh, but out of all those three championships in the second three-peat, 98 was the toughest. And I remember in game six thinking specifically, you know, if we don't win this, game seven is not going to be easy. But what I did forget about was Pippen's back. And I'm thinking, Harry, that out of all this... <laughs> Poor yeah. Pip. I, I love Scotty Pippen. Pip. No, hold oh, on. I don't even know. No, you're not, you're not going to convince me of poor Pip after watching this documentary. Uh, but but here's, I don't know how he even agreed to be in this. He got <laughs> roasted. Just, nothing but he just got roasted for ten hours. <laughs> and I and I here's what I mean, Harry. I love Pip because as flawed as he was at his peak, oh my God. I mean, he he was for a time, arguably the best, the second best player in the NBA, maybe for a three I, year stretch. But ultimately, I don't even buy that aspect. But he he was ultimately the best number two guy, meaning that he was the best wingman, right? So I think we'd yeah. acknowledge that he was the best wingman for Jordan, and could have been for other superstars as well. But man, the back thing they they covered that, and Jordan didn't have that same sort of dismissive tone like he did about the migraine, which he doesn't seem to really believe that even now. But damn, if that goes game seven and you got a gimpy Pippen, you have an exhausted Jordan, I don't know. I, I think it probably does not end well for the Bulls. So that, that, that to me is just one of those, damn, you better win game six. And I know Bob Costa said essentially the same thing last night. If Scottie Pippen had played in the 1930s, his name would have been Gimpy Pippins. That's, <laughs> Gimpy that's Pippins. Sounds like a Charles Dickens Gimpy. character. <laughs> Gimpy Pippins. Hello, Governor. I'm Gimpy Pippins. Do you have six pence? So yeah, I, I yeah, I have I have no. I mean, there were so many little aspects of that documentary. There was uh, was it four? I mean, you have the migraine is one. You have the back is two. And when the migraine thing happened, I actually I actually bought that because that was the first totally. aspect of you hearing of 
Pimp, uh, Gimpy uh, Pippins. Gimpy Pippins. <laughs> That's the name of this episode. Gimpy Pippins. <laughs> yeah, but that was the first time you had heard of him, you know, having one of these instances. But then he has the thing with his foot where he doesn't get surgery to put pressure on Krauss when you he should have known the whole time that nothing was going to get done. Um, and the pound he, fest when he doesn't go in because he's not getting the shot. I was just going to get to that one. That one absolutely drove me crazy. That's the worst. And then afterwards, That's the worst. Yeah, and then afterwards saying that you would have done it over again. So by this, by by now, when your back hurts in a potential series clinching game, yeah, you lost all sympathy for me. But here's the here's the thing, Harry, and we talked about this in the text about a little bit last night. There is a chance. There's two things that are possible here. Now, as someone that's had my back go out about two, three times twice in the last few years it sucks it's scary you feel like any move that you make it's just going to lock up and you can't really do anything about it and muscle relaxers are essentially the only thing that are going to get you through it so i get it i can relate but on the other hand trevor maybe there's a mental component here like is it possible that all these bad luck things happen to pippin and when the lights shone their brightest and keep in mind, he still has a much longer list of big plays in big games sure. than he does failures. But what a, what a list of bad things happening, unlucky things happening in the biggest moments. And I'm thinking, well, there might be a mental thing here where, you know, he's only human and he's not Michael Jordan. No one, no one is. So I, I could see that being a factor as well. Yeah. The, the only reason why I would even float that is simply because it seems like, and maybe I'm just doing my selective memory here because, again, I didn't experience it firsthand as it happened. But it seemed like most every one of his somehow he's stricken ill right before the game was a game seven of a series, was it not? Right. I mean, that was the or at least it game wasn't six. game seven, but 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 the, the potential clinching game of a series. That was the same thing with the migraine as it was with the back. And I'm not saying like he made the whole thing up, but there is such a thing. And I, I brought up the example last night is like. There's people who get sick right before they always have to travel. And yeah. then it's like, oh, they always have to cancel the vacation or cancel their plans. Like, there is the component where I'm not saying his back didn't hurt. I'm sure it hurt like hell. But there might be a reason why his back hurt other than his back just tightened up. For some reason, he just maybe he wasn't. He just didn't have the, I mean, it's not a clutch gene, but he didn't have the, um, I don't know, maybe he tightens up in big games and that causes him to, to get hurt. Well, and to that point, uh well, and actually more with the way the documentary framed Pippin, because there was talk or there was a report that came out that Pippin and his camp were not happy with the way he was being portrayed in this documentary. And I get that they can only cover yeah, no certain kidding. things. Right, exactly. Now, now, some of that is his own doing. But when it comes to this game, I did feel as if the directors and even Jordan were trying to throw Pippin a bone here by saying, man, you know, and Scotty, I he just came right back out and he he did his thing and... And yeah, Scotty had the trainer say that he, he toughed it out, and no one else would have been able to tough that out, or something that, like that, right? And, and then yeah. he went right back into the locker room. <laughs> yeah, real tough. Now, as as I'm looking at this box score of that game, now we know that Jordan had 45 points, and on 15 to 35 shooting, which is is not great necessarily, but again, he he had to be the one taking the shots. Kukoc, he had 15 points. Pippen with eight points, four assists three rebounds, but in the plus minus, which I know is an imperfect stat in 26 minutes of play, he was plus 16, which was the best on the team. 
And I think that's what they were kind of getting to last night. Even Jordan said something like, hey, as long as you're out on the court, I just need you there. You don't need to shoot. You don't need to do any. Just be there on the court. And he was. And when he was, the Bulls were much better that night. I'd have to go back and watch that game to see the true impact he had. And what I saw on Twitter from a few Bulls fans that remembered experiencing that game live was they were all confused as to why it seemed like the Jazz were the only ones that didn't know he was hurt. Because if you watch some of the footage from that episode, He's still making shots, and the Jazz aren't, like, attacking him. Like, if I'm a Jazz player, why aren't you going right at him to the rim every time? And, and I, I saw a couple people on Twitter saying the most confusing thing about that aspect of that game was that he was able to play 26 minutes basically unchallenged, still made a few shots. It didn't really feel like the Jazz took advantage of him clearly looking like he shouldn't even be on the floor. This is crazy as I look at this, too. The Utah Jazz out-rebounded the Bulls in that game 33-22. to Tony Kukoc, he's 6'9", played 42 minutes. He grabbed three boards. Luke, <coughs> Luke Longley, two boards. I mean, it was, and of course, Rodman with the most of eight. But that was the one thing with that Bulls team and why Utah was a tricky matchup is, you know, Greg Ostertag, I think, was the center for, or Adam Keefe got some playing time for them, too. They didn't have a great center on Utah, but they were bigger. You know, they were just bigger and more physical. And that's why I thought if it did go to a game seven, it probably isn't going to end well. Yeah, the uh, the weird thing about looking back at these series, both in 97 and in 98 with Utah, it's weird. Every time I hear about a story or every story that has to do with the Bulls facing up against uh, the Jazz, it always seems like it starts out with, yeah, the Jazz got off to a hot start and the Bulls really had to fight and claw their way back. And it makes it sound like the Jazz were almost the dominant force in every time they they faced up against one another because I mean even in the 98 season they said yeah the Jazz were the only team that year that didn't lose to the Bulls yeah so as that season ended the Jazz if you if you include the regular season the team split eight games and they each won four of them and as I look at the box scores here for that series here are the final scores in the 1998 NBA finals 88 to 85 Utah in game one 93 to 88 Chicago in game two 96 50 Four. I couldn't believe that but when I saw that. It's still it's, insane. It's they had that game, game, had that game on NBC <laughs> Chicago um, early this last week, and it's the Utah was just terrible that game. Game four, eighty six to eighty two Chicago. Game five, eighty three to eighty one Utah, and then eighty seven, eighty six Chicago. So no team got to a hundred points in a single game in that series, and. You know, when I was watching it growing up, that was just what the NBA was. It's certainly not the prettiest game to watch, but, you know, on the other side, give me the the nice medium between the Warriors making 38 three-pointers a game and what we saw back in 1998. Give me the happy medium between those two things because the criticism of the game today is that it's so reliant on the three-point shot, and I... I relate to that a little bit, and I think that's my own nostalgia for this brand of basketball, Harry, as ugly as it may have been that more physical kind of basketball as opposed to the Warriors and that finesse. Beautiful game, for sure, but it's just it's a lot more finesse-based, and for some reason that doesn't connect with me. That's the old man yelling at Cloud in me. No, I get that, and that's probably, I mean, it appeals to the younger generation more. I'm not sure why, but you see a lot. I mean, people, I think, Trevor, you might have said it a couple of weeks ago, how important it is now coming out of high school that a player really has that three ball because you could be, a player that would have been great in the 1990s and nowadays you're just it's not the same you need to be able to shoot the three you're seeing centers like 
Joel Embiid, uh, Anthony Davis, Giannis able to hit threes. You would have never seen that back in the in the '90s when this documentary took place. So, as 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 for as far as I go, and this might have something to do with the fact that you know I played football and I enjoy watching hockey. I like sports that are a little bit more physical. So seeing at any time that basketball would have been a little bit more of a physical sport as opposed to now where if you get slapped on the wrist, one of the guys is going to go flying and then it's going to be called a foul. That just doesn't do it for me. And then the, the, um, the other side of the ball for that is, okay, they're just going to sit back here and, you know, yank up a bunch of three pointers. And if half of them go in, a game can go from a 10 point game to a one point game in a split second. So maybe it, keeps it maybe a little bit more competitive when both teams can do it. But at the same time, I feel like when points are at a premium, each bucket means more. So as far as I go, I definitely get the argument that, you know, these games nowadays, scores are so high. You see games where I remember in the mid two thousands, the Houston Rockets played a game where they scored 70 or 80 points in the first half. And I thought that was incredible. That's done virtually all the time now. If you don't reach 70 points in the first half, or not not if you don't, but teams will, like clockwork, reach 70 points in the first half, and it's really not seen as that really out of the box. So yeah. the, the, uh, the, the idea that maybe it's a little bit too reliant on the three-point ball, I don't think that would be the right term because I think players are better at shooting it now. But I do think it has made the game a little bit, at least for me, I don't enjoy watching the game quite as much now as I would have back when scores were maybe in the higher 90s, lower 100s, like when the Lakers were winning championships. Sure. Well, I think some of that shift, too, is just like you brought up, Harry, is just like not to say the teams back then were illogical, but people looked at stats and how three pointers worked and they go, well, well, you know, it just makes sense. You know, if you're down 10, it would take five shots to tie it by taking twos and it would take three to tie it by taking three. So in a certain sense, I think the, the shift towards higher scoring was not only player based, but also just stats based as stats became more infused with the game and you got more stats and you learn more about it. People were figuring, well, why take a 17 foot mid range jumper? If you can step back two feet and have it count for another point, you know? Uh, yeah. And that, that's the part of the game that I think has really changed the most because that that shot doesn't make any sense. Why take a shot from right there if it's not going to lead? Like you said, you can just step back and get a couple more points. The the thing that does surprise me though is you're still going to get the same kind of percentage when you're when, when you're a big guy. So I I feel like the big guy back in the late 2000s, up until the late 2000s, I think the last great strictly big center would have been Dwight Howard where he was a dominant player. He could change the entire game. He could score 45 or 50 points. Imagine that nowadays, yeah. a big man scoring 50 points. It's insane. It just doesn't happen. But back then, if you had a guy like Shaq or like uh, like Dwight Howard, like Tim Duncan, who would be able to bully his way to the basket and either get a dunk, a layup, or maybe a little bit of a, a jump hook or a short jump shot, those are the ones that are able to be efficient for them. But now you just see – well, you can take that same guy and then let him get his and then go on the other side of the court and have a guy just take two steps back, have the same shooting night, and score 20 more points as him. Well, defenses are also doing the hack-a-shack thing now, too. So, you know, 
not all the time, but if you're an Andre Drummond who can't shoot a free throw to save his life, <laughs> but can grab 20 boards a game, yeah. again, I don't think it's necessarily just a finesse thing, which you're right that it is, but I think it's also more just like a smarter thing. Like, well, I might as well just foul this guy and let him go 0 for 2 from the line every time. All right, a couple more things here. Linda Cohn, there was this uh, random clip that they showed from the vault. They were doing these old sports center clips, and I thought it was actually an app comparison. So the Bulls win, the Grant Park celebration, which that just became sort of a normal summer routine for me, was watching those Grant Park celebrations on WGN. And she compares the Bulls to the Beatles, where I think instead of George, John, Ringo, and Paul, you got Phil, Michael, Scotty, Dennis, and instead of Yoko, you have Jerry Krause. And I thought that was actually kind of funny and it fit because we see at the end of episode 10 out of all the revelations or really not so much revelations but clarification from Jordan himself that he would have come back I don't know how much that changes things ultimately Trevor I I think that yes there were external forces at play and as a fan I think it was a fitting end I would much prefer that to them coming back in 99 strike shortened season and losing potentially to the Spurs or maybe not even making the finals it's not just as easy as saying we're getting the band back together, we're going to run it back and win it again. Uh, so I'm, I'm torn. It's like on one hand, Trevor, it's the perfect Hollywood ending for the, the Bulls story. On the other hand, that Jordan still thinks, yeah, I would have come back. That says to me that maybe we were robbed prematurely of one more title for that franchise. Well, and I think two things here. One, if there was going to be a season where a tired Jordan and an older Scottie Pippen could have still made it work. It would be a season where you only had to play what half the games that you otherwise would have right. had to play by playing 50 instead of 82. But obviously you didn't even know that at that time, that's just one of those things where in hindsight, it just sucks. But I think the other facet of it here, and I think the thing that bothered Michael and I can understand again, it doesn't bother me firsthand because I didn't witness it firsthand. But I think the thing that bothered Michael and others was just that the opportunity was not presented to defend the title and whether or not it would have worked. I don't know. I mean, personally, just as someone who again is watching this from a very analytical perspective, I don't know that they would have, I mean, he just looked so gassed by the end of that series. And suddenly Scotty's like, he can't walk all of a sudden. So to me, it's like, you know, I don't know personally if they would have been able to run it back, but I think the frustration just comes from the fact that you didn't even get that opportunity. You know, I mean, a lot of, yeah, it'd be like, I don't know, let's see, uh, The Dark Knight, they, they never make another one. Dark Knight Rises wasn't very good, and I know that you agree with me on that, yeah. but it also would have kind of sucked if you never even got a chance to watch a sequel to that, yeah, right? Yeah, I would agree. You're telling me you don't like the scene in The Dark Knight Rises where he needs to get punched in the back in order to fix his spine? <laughs> hey, that's what Scotty needed. Yeah, that's exactly. Yes. You just need a so, Bane yeah, to come I, fix him right Basara. up. Yeah, I, I, that was a ridiculous scene. But yeah, I, I, I was I kind of thought two. I took two things away from Jordan looking at the iPad when when Phil Jackson was talking about running it back. Uh, the first was he said something to the effect of he didn't want to go out in his peak, which went exactly it contradicted what he said a couple episodes ago, where he was making fun of not making fun of just saying how Patrick Ewing had said you got to carry me off the court when I'm done. And I don't want that to happen to me. I want to go out with still a couple of years left. So don't really know which side of the coin he sits on that because he yeah. you know, completely contradicted himself there. The other one was, did it was it just me or did he kind of seem like he was almost taken aback by what Phil had said? Or, or was 
was it Phil? Or no, no, what uh, what Reinsdorf had said that Phil had said. Oh, he was. Is, yeah. yeah, Jordan looked like he was almost like seeing this for the first time and kind of scramble and wasn't really sure what he was supposed to say to that. Well, he was. He said that he'd never heard Reinsdorf's official comment on why the team broke up, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, and here's Do you the want thing. a hot take? Yeah. Go, go ahead, no, you, you go first here, Trevor. I want a hot take. Okay. I'd like one, too. Don't like hate a hot me. hot cake. Hot cake. Wow, that'd be interesting. I don't know how I <laughs> like a no, birthday no, cake when it's hot. No, no, no. Hot cake is just what McDonald's calls their pancakes. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 like a pancake. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, hot um, cakes, pancakes. <laughs> I'm over here picturing like a smoldering hot birthday cake. Um, Ooh, a molten lava cake. <laughs> oh, okay. Are, obviously, oh, that is good. Obviously, Jerry Krause is an idiot. All right. Fair enough. But. He's getting the flack for breaking the, the band up. But as I'm watching the end of that 98 season, I mean, Jordan's like he can barely stand. Pippen's in the back getting iced up because he can't even bend over. Like, there, there, is a, there is a small portion of me that goes, I kind of understand why from a managerial GM perspective, you would look at that and go, I can't invest another five years into this as they all become, you know, old and crippled and can't do anything for me on the, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it, it, the, the criticism was that he broke them up before they needed to, but I guess a little bit of me wants to counter that by saying he was presented a lot of evidence that showed him that the dynasty was kind of wrapping up. Yeah. But yeah. I, I still think you could have done the one year thing. And this is where sure. Reinsdorf's comment, like, Hey, you know, you're going to be paying above market value for Ron Harper. And I don't know what the above market value was for Ron Harper in 1998, but I think Jordan, you know, I don't know how persuasive of a salesman he was, but I think winning one more title, that's persuasive enough where he could have convinced, as he said, Scotty would have been the tough one. But I think Scotty ultimately comes back for one more year. I don't know. It's, I find myself can't torn. Read Scotty. <laughs> can't, can't read Scotty. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I, I, I do agree with you in some regards, Trevor, in that, I do think he was looking forward. Maybe he was looking at it almost like the other 29 GMs would have looked at their team if their team had won a couple of championships. But the difference here is that you have maybe the single greatest team in the history of sports, which is is an outlier. Now, the idea that they were kind of getting worn down at the end of the 98 season, I think we might be getting a little bit caught up in how much of the theatrics were done with this documentary in that showing just how tired they were. I mean, you could honestly take any of the championships, probably minus the 72 win one. You could take any of those championships and kind of tilt the camera the same way and say, Jordan sitting on the bench saying, I was winded and just say, absolutely. (laughs) Like you could insert little dramatics here and there. The end of the day, if you bring back that same core, because I don't think anyone was too terribly old. I mean, Jordan's still putting up 45 points in the last game of his career. Yeah, I think that if you bring back mostly everyone, or if you did bring back everyone, you give them an offseason, everyone gets healthy after an offseason. Now, it's got to end eventually, but there's no reason to believe that team couldn't have kept doing it. Now, I, I mean, the, the right answer here is, and this isn't the, the maybe fancy answer or the well-accepted one, because no one wants to have any blemishes on the Bulls dynasty. But the correct answer is you break up the band when they lose. But then, 
you know, and you don't have six and zero in the finals. I mean, you're right. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not. I'm not saying that he made the right decision by not deciding to run it back. They should have. It's just a small part of me thought, you know, as he takes all this criticism for essentially ending things before they should have been ended. I, 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 a little bit of me just thought, well, okay, if Michael is so tired, he can't make a shot, you know, and Scotty's getting hurt left and right. And Dennis isn't even there as he wrestles Hulk Hogan. I'm yeah. just thinking like, <laughs> the, the, oh, I, I could, I could understand for five seconds, a small part of me could understand why a GM would look at that from an on paper perspective and go, okay, this kind of needs to end. You know, Kraus got the raw end of the deal in this documentary. Well, he did and he didn't. I mean, this is what's so confounding about his legacy is that as I look at the Bulls and Jerry Kraus when he would have been the GM all the way up through 03, we can say best executive. And by the way, Gimpy Pippins was very nice to Jerry Kraus. He threw that sort of bone saying, you know, you got the greatest player of all time, got the greatest coach of all time, you got the greatest. GM of all time, and it. I, I, and then I, they all boo. <laughs> <laughs> but look at this. So uh, the Bulls thing ends right, and Jerry Krause. And, and to your point, Trevor, yeah, and and especially in today's NBA, look at what the Warriors are doing. It makes sense to say, listen, we aren't going to win it anyways this year. Like our run is over. Let's really, really suck and get those draft picks. Here are the win totals for the Bulls beginning in 1998-99. thirteen. 17, 15, 21, 30, 23. Well, that's why, that's why it's harder to defend, right? Is because in hindsight, if you were just going to suck anyways, you might as well have had them another two years and suck with them. They were abysmal, and it does not take that long to rebuild into a playoff team. It wasn't until Garpax, to their credit, or Paxson more specifically got there, and then he had the Baby Bulls in uh, 05 and 06 and 07 begin to make playoffs again. But it's just, I look at that and I'm thinking, this is the legacy, and this is why it's so difficult to really measure it. Yes, he did surround Jordan with guys that helped him win titles. But how great of a supporting cast really is Luke Longley and Judd right. Bushler and Bill Wennington situation with LeBron, right? Like Anderson Verjao. You don't think of him Oof. and think like, wow, you know, Hall of Fame player. Well, Anderson, uh, yeah. or, or really, yes, you had Scotty. And that was Jerry Krause's probably finest move was trading up to get Scottie Pippen, who at that point was a NAIA college player, not even NCAA. That's a risk, but it paid off. Horace Grant, another great move. Dennis Rodman, a great move and a risky move, but you only had to give up Will Purdue to get that. So yeah, he did make some really good moves throughout that run and gave Jordan what he needed to win the title. But ultimately, you know, greatest GM of all time, not even close, but he did serve his role well when he needed to in that championship run. So that's yeah. where it's just a really tricky line to, between good or bad GM or just somewhere in between. He was pro- he was right in the middle, probably. I just think some of I think some of the and again now I'm sounding like a Jerry Krause defender or apologist. No, you're I'm fine. Not trying to, but I just think a little bit of the reason why he catches so much flack is because the Bulls have now sucked for another 20 years. And I don't really know that that's fair well, because I, I don't know how much he had to do with that. You know what I mean? And who should be getting the flag is Reinsdorf. And this oh, is what Reinsdorf, the White Sox oh, and the yeah. Bulls. Yep. 
It's somehow it, he was like he. I mean, he almost got off until the last ten minutes of the last episode. He almost got off completely scot free in this documentary of criticism. Yeah, um, actually, Dan Levitard had came on a couple days ago and said exactly what you guys are saying right now. Why is Reinsdorf absolutely skating on this? He's the one who controls the money at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if Kraus says the whole eighty-two and zero thing. You're not getting another. You're not getting another year because Reinsdorf can come in and say, "Hey, if you get rid of Phil Jackson, your ass is gone." And I felt like this documentary kind of just let him go scot free. Man, I'm looking back at this Bulls run here. I mean, here's the coaches too. After Phil Jackson, Tim Floyd. Uh, don't even. No, but here, here's. Go. I'm going to do some quick math here. Okay, uh, four, two Iowa State guys. Yes, uh, Floyd four plus fifteen says so nineteen plus thirty six. Uh, fifty. Okay, he had forty nine total wins in three plus seasons. <laughs> that's, that's not as much wins at well. Well, one of those is a strike shortened season. True. Bill Cartwright was well. There were two games coached by Brent Berry. Go figure. And then Bill Cartwright took over. He went seventeen and thirty eight, and then thirty and fifty two, and then four and ten. He was replaced by Pete Myers for two games. He went zero and two. Scott All Skiles. Coach named Pete. <laughs> Scott Pete. Skiles came in, and he actually zero percent winning percentage all time for Pete Skiles. To his credit, <laughs> uh, he turned things around with the Baby Bulls and got them respectable again. And they actually won a playoff series in 07. And then he's replaced by Pete Myers again. I guess Pete Myers he coached three total games for the Bulls, and then <laughs> Jim Boylan get this took over for the rest of that 08 yeah. season. Then Vinny Del Negro. Literally, literally went eighty-two and eighty-two and in his two years. <laughs> yep. Then Tom Tom Thibodeau, which you know there was a shelf life for a guy like Tom Thibodeau, yes. but pretty damn good coach, all things considered. And then Fred Fred Hoiberg and <laughs> Jim Boylan again. What this is the Bulls. This is why that is freaking pathetic. It is pathetic. And they get off scot-free, and I went to a, a couple Bulls games since. It was the Derrick Rose year in 2010, and that was really cool. And then I went to one when it was the Dwayne Wade, Jimmy Butler team. That, <laughs> yeah. Rajon Rondo. And they, Yeah, uh, that's dude, right. That team, that team, when you have Rajon Rondo and Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade, how are you going to be anything higher than, or anything lower than a two-seed? Well, they well, were the eight-seed. Except Butler. And then they... Uh, didn't they beat the Celtics in the one eight matchup the first like two out of three games and then yeah, they they Rondo got hurt. Rondo right. got and hurt. So the yeah. story was well, if Rondo didn't get hurt, yeah, which you never Bulls know, but might have gone all the way. Yeah, well, <laughs> Wayne Wade, Wayne Wade, well, it was kind of like time bowl. It was kind of like the year that uh, Nate Robinson led the Bulls against the Heat and they stole Game One in Miami. That's right. And you thought like, oh, they might have this, and then yeah, they proceeded no. to lose like four or five. Yeah, badly too. I, I, re- I remember, and I don't know if you guys. I mean, you guys probably would have been more vested in this, but this is when I had started. I mean, I was following the Bulls maybe a little bit because I was about to move up to Champaign. This was right around when I was going to start my uh, freshman year of college. And my girlfriend at the time loved the Bulls. So I would follow them. I'd kind of have a little bit of an interest in them because she liked them. I remember that being a kind of fun year with Nate Robinson and the, uh, the Nets. Oh, it was. Yeah. I, I liked that year. Was that the okay. same year that um, you had the game against the Brooklyn Nets that went into triple overtime and Nate just went yep. ridiculous? I think that's yeah, right. Nate yeah. Robinson, he hit a, a like a, a buzzer beating. Well, 
it was a crazy shot off the backboard. It was a running floater. Yeah, that looked like the game winner. Then Joe Johnson hit it to tie it. But you do end up winning that game. You um, you ended the the Carmelo Anthony led uh, Knicks. They had like a thirteen game winning streak that you ended. You ended the the Miami Heat winning streak earlier in the season. That's right. When they had like twenty seven games, that was a fun year for the Bulls. Here's all you need to know about the Bulls, guys, as a franchise. And this is again Reinsdorf. He didn't own the team for all 54 seasons. I know that. But in 54 seasons, the Bulls have a win percentage of 51%. Wow. (laughs) You were gifted essentially 70 to 80% win percentages for an 8, 9, 10-year period. And somehow your win percentage is just over 500. That's pretty bad. Just a smidge. Have you guys seen? Go ahead. You got to remember, though, that Jordan did everything he could to probably bring that up from the depths. The best shot of the entire uh, documentary, by the way, was when they said it was something to the effect of, I forget the guy's name, but um, they were saying how this Bulls team is going to more closely resemble the such and such Bulls team from before Jordan was there. And it was this big, lanky, fat white guy with skinny <laughs> arms guarding like. Yeah. There was a great uh, Norm McDonald joke, too, on Weekend Update. And this is after, you know, all the it, it was clear that they were not coming back. And and Norm McDonald says, I'm like, but no worries, though. Steve Kerr is expected to score. I, I forget what the joke was. I can't deliver. But so like, you know, was, 35 points a game. Like, yeah, it was like, don't worry, Bulls fans. If Steve Kerr scores 60 points a game for the rest <laughs> of the year, you'll have a you know, four-peat. Uh, here is the all-time top 12 players in Bulls history according to win shares. So win shares is sort yeah. of like the equivalent of, in baseball, we talk about war. Now, number one, obviously, is Jordan, and number two is Pippen. Jordan has right. the most win shares of any player in NBA history, I believe, with 204.5. Scotty. Now, is this is this something that accumulates like war, or is yep. this an average? It accumu- okay, okay. Each year there's an average, and then over time it accumulates. Okay. So that like let's say you got a five... 0.4 win shares one year and you got four the next then it's 9.4 total so scotty okay, 99.7 yeah. he's number two number three is a guy i've never heard of chet walker number four artist gilmore <laughs> good old chetty walks yeah chetty walks and then number five is horace grant who is uh, i i can't maybe maybe he is criminally underrated and he went to the magic and was an immediate impact all star for that 94, 94, or yeah, 94, 95 Magic team. Guess who number six? I'll, I'll let you guys guess the next three. They're all within the last 15 years. Me, Trevor, let's go back and forth. Uh, you can, Actually, I want to go first because I think I got this one. Okay. okay. I'm going to say we're on number six. Mm hmm. Uh, Kirk Heinrich. He is actually, seven, eight. He's 11. Ah. Just out of the top um, 10. Joakim Noah. He is number seven. 57.3 win shares. Someone is above him. Okay, oof. Uh, Lou Dang. Yeah, there you go. Lou Dang. Behind Joakim is someone who is no longer with the Bulls. Kyle Korver. (laughs) (laughs) That that was a joke. Uh Hot sauce. I forgot that. Hot sauce. Give him the hot sauce. Uh, well, I want to say Derek, but he. I mean, he was only actually really good for like a year and a half. Derek, Derek is not in the top 12 yeah. of one shirt. Makes sense. 
Um, not Boozer. Um, more recent. More recent than Boozer. Yep. Uh, Jimmy I, Butler. I literally have not. Uh, okay, all right. I have not watched the Bulls in like three years. I'm not even kidding. Bob Love, <laughs> Jerry Sloan, Kirk Heinrich, and then Tony Kukoc rounding out the top twelve. Did you say? Uh, did who? Who did you say? Jimmy Butler. Who? Okay, it was Butler. Yep. Okay. Yep. Have yeah, you guys I, seen Arrested Development? No, I need yeah, to though. I saw, I saw the the original run. The dad on there. Do you know? I forget the actor's name. The guy who plays I the know, dad who's who's in prison at the start. Yeah, he looks just like Jerry Reinsdorf. He kind of does. Oh, you're right, Jeffrey I, Tambor, the yeah, actor. Kinda, yeah, you're he right. Does yeah. not look like like his twin. I don't know. I just, just dawned on me. He kind of does look yeah. a little bit like him. That show was funny. The original run of that show was funny. The uh, when they reran it, I I just couldn't get into it again. It was bad. Netflix added it, and they did one more season. And it was bad. Uh, here's yeah. something interesting. Uh, he's still missing. He's only playing 50 games a year. But Derrick Rose, when healthy, the last two years is averaging 18 points a game. Yeah, he's been pretty good. He's been. Is he with the Pistons now? He's with the Pistons. Yeah. He was with the T Wolves before that. Yeah, I mean it. His is, I mean, is there a bigger what-if story no. in the history of sports? Well, at least I in mean, the history of NBA. I mean, NBA basketball, you could say the ultimate what-if would be Len Bias. Len Bias, yeah. Uh, but this is, it, yeah, it's sad. I think if you, were to go, if you were to go sport by sport, it would be Len Bias slash Derrick Rose. And then in football, would it be Bo Jackson? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. And then you guys probably know baseball more so than me. I'm trying to think of a what if for baseball. Someone that showed a lot of promise and then it just, I mean, here's, this is going to sound crazy because he's still one of the best players of all time. But the drop off for Ken Griffey Jr. from when he went from Seattle to Cincinnati was ridiculous. The the biggest star in the game for about five years. And then just this immense drop off. And by the end of it, he's just a shell of himself. And it's like, what happened to the kid? You know, he, he was Mike Trout before Mike Trout. And, We'll see if Mike Trout has the same longevity or has more longevity, but I just remember that being a really big drop off. You could yeah, argue well, when cool. he went. Oh, I was going to say when he went to Cincinnati, he started seeing red. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that you could almost argue that, uh, and it, this isn't true because he's still been productive, but Pools went from, you know, again, like otherworldly with the Cardinals too. As soon as he was on the Angels, he was measurably worse. Yeah. To and where you have to wonder, like maybe another ten years with the Cardinals instead of the Angels, and he might be like the greatest hitter of all time. Well, that's he was on track to be that, Trevor. That's just so weird. He was on track to be the greatest hitter of all time. Power, yeah. average, all of it. I'm looking at Ken Griffey's stats here. He went to Cincinnati when he was 30. That's it. He wasn't that old. And in, uh, in the years that he was at Cincinnati, he went from basically you could count on him. Uh, I guess he did have one injury adult season with Seattle, but you could count on him playing at least 145 games. Cincinnati played 111, 70, 53, 83 games in his first five years. And that was a big investment for the Reds. And they just kind of were muddled in mediocrity for that entire decade. And Griffey made three total all-star games. In eight seasons with the Reds, huh? He was yeah, meeting, he was he was just there. He wasn't that good. Well, I mean, when, when is the drop off for for baseball? Mid thirties, usually thirty five, thirty six. Yeah. Oh wow. 
Jeez, that's, that's much older than I would have thought. You could remember Alan Craig on the Cardinals. He he was like an MVP candidate one year, and then he that just disappeared. Traded forever. to the Red Sox, right? Yep. Yeah, and then became ended up being not very good over there. But yeah, just really bizarre. And he went essentially. Ken Griffey Jr. went to Cincinnati, which I think is where his dad played. So it was like yeah, a homecoming uh, of sorts. I thought he played with his dad when his dad was they, in uh, Seattle. They did once. Yeah, there was one season where they were on the same team together. As I look up Ken Griffey Sr. Man, I can get lost on baseball reference anytime and just... Yeah, yeah. It was uh, Cincinnati for his dad. And he left Cincinnati when he was 31. And then Ken Griffey Jr. arrives at Cincinnati when he's 30, 31 years old. Huh. Hmm. And, of course, he did play for the White Sox at the end of his career, too. Ken Griffey Jr. White Sox had some some sneaky, weird all-timers that were on their team for, like, like Manny Manny Ramirez Ramirez, was a White Sox for one year. Manny Ramirez was a White Sox. Very briefly, yes. Manny was a White Sox. Adam Dunn was on the White Sox for a year or two. That's all I got. I can't, yeah, I can't, Adam I can't Dunn, help with the baseball reference. And he, he batted like 190, didn't he? I got to look yeah, at Adam he Dunn. he had like 40 bombs. Uh, let's see Jim, here. Jim Tomei was a free. Yeah. He was really good, though. And he came, though, the year after the World Series, I think, and the White Sox did not make the postseason. Adam Dunn for the White Sox. Look at these averages here. 159. Sexy. 204. Ooh. And 219. Whoa. There you go. So for the White Sox, here is his total. He uh, did finish above the Mendoza line in his four years of the White Sox, 201 batting average. He did hit 106 bombs, but he struck out 720 times in 1,800 at-bats. Wait, he hit 106 home runs in three years? That's all he did was either hit home runs or strike out. That's that's pretty high risk, high reward. My God, that's that's over uh, 33 home runs a year. He was pretty good for Cincinnati. I mean, he could mash, but I guess that ballpark was a little bit more of a hitter's park out in Cincinnati than we have the White Sox. Which, by the way, are we going to get baseball, you think, Trevor? Uh, I don't know. I think the problem is just that there's no – my, my, my fear is just that there's so many stipulations. No showers. And, 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 and understandably so. Like, I don't want to sit here and say it's stupid that they have rules that you can't spit. It makes sense. But the problem is – Every single player has to agree on this. To, to, not every single, but the majority have to agree on this. And I just think, how do I put this tactfully? I think there's enough of a population amongst baseball players that would uh, not value... Uh, <laughs> how do I put this? No, you, there's there... enough players in baseball that want to spit and want to uh, say that maybe... They're not worried about this, and that coronavirus is, is, a, is a Chinese hoax or whatever they want to say, that I fear that, that not enough players will agree to this to get it passed. Well, this was the league that had Aubrey Huff, so you don't need to that, feel that, bad for saying right. that there might I'm, be a I'm few guys. To, that... Yeah, I'm trying to tactfully admit that there are a lot of Aubrey Huffs in baseball. You know, I got to admit, too, and this is where the tricky thing goes. On Saturday, I went over to my parents' house, and my sister did, too, and we hung out in the patio, socially distanced, took a cooler over, had a couple drinks, had some snacks, and just talked for a couple hours. And it was great. And being younger-ish, I mean, you guys are younger than I by 10 years or so, you know, there is the sense of, oh, my God, can we please get going? Like, there is that anxiety. I get it. Um, but I, I find myself, you know, trying to 
I want to make sure that I empathize with people that want to get things going again, especially when you have economic concerns. But then there's the other side where it's like, I feel like that argument's been hijacked by, let's say, the the very small minority of people that are going to these open thing up, open things up protest, brandishing their guns. Like there, there's a middle area where we can have a conversation, but it feels like we can't because it's either black or white. And unfortunately the uh, open things back up crowd has been hijacked by Tucker gerbs, which yes, there should be frustration for that. (laughs) There's a difference though, right? Like there's, there's an absolute difference between, the small business owner in the county that has two cases and both of them that are in a nursing home right that is going to lose everything if he doesn't open his business by next monday and needs to and now he's hearing the governor say he's going to be put in prison if he tries to open did pritzker versus, say that he did say that if if you defy the orders you threaten jail time if you're a small business owner but but my counter to that is exactly what you just said carp in the sense that some people don't seem to understand the um the cause and effect nature of, well, maybe the reason why he's now having to threaten jail time is because so many idiots are running out there with their AK-47s and running up to Capitol Hill saying, I need to get my hair cut. I want to get my nails done. If I, if I don't, I'm going to shoot you. You know, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's people, people don't seem to understand the cause and effect of, well, downstate Illinois has numbers that aren't too bad. So we should open. Well, maybe the numbers aren't too bad because they're not open. You know what I mean? Like, it's an A and a B here. It's, it's not it's just circular, it's, right? It's, it's not. It's not just black and white to where either everything needs to be open or everything needs to be shut. Like there's a cause and effect to everything that happens here. And while I totally sympathize with anybody who is in a situation where you know their entire livelihood depends on opening, I just think we need to recognize that there's so many different sides to this, and it's not as easy as to just say, "All right, let's open." Harry. Keep stuff closed <laughs> until people are healthy. I don't know, man. I'm just frustrated at this point. Well, I, me too. I, it, it is frustrating because, uh, and this is where the selfish part of it comes in a little bit. I'm even thinking like in August, right? And they're going to give us about three different options for when schools open. And it seems like the options are you go back as normal. You either do A and B days or weeks. So let's say half of your class comes in one week, the other half comes in the next week, or the third option is just what we've been doing online, stay at home. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I could go with either one, any one of those options because I'm 33 years old. If I get it, whatever. And in a weird way, I'm like, all right, just give me the damn disease so I can get inoculated and be, you know, able to go out in the world. But then I'm thinking, if I do that, even merely by going back to school, and then all of a sudden, when school starts again, do I need to avoid my parents out of some sort of, hey, right. I might be exposed to it. So, hey, mom and dad, I'll see you when the school year is over. Bye. You know, like I don't want to live that life either. So it's just on one hand, I want more direction. Like I I want and that and maybe consistent direction too, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, tell me, I'm, not tell, a, I'm not a Pritzker cheerleader because I, I will admit the goalposts have been moved several times on this, right? They have where been. at first it was we need to make sure that we get through the peak to we need to make sure we flatten the curve to now people are saying, don't go outside till we have a vaccine. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, you just said a month ago that we can go outside once it is safer. But now the goalposts seem to be moved to the point where you can't go outside until it is safest. Yeah. And the idea that you want to be able to go, I mean, if we're saying we can't go outside until there is a vaccine, I don't see, I 
I mean, when has that ever been the case? That wasn't the case 100 years ago. I feel like that's never been the case in the history that vaccines have existed. Like, I feel like it's always it's always when when it's under control because no disease that gets out to the general population like this has is ever going to be completely eradicated. Right? Yeah, right. And that's where it's just, I mean, herd immunity is going to take so long. That would take years. So, okay, fine. If we want to go that approach like Sweden did, there is a cost to that too where your death rate is going to be fairly high, and it is in Sweden. Uh, but I'm just thinking... As I said this in the opening segment. Here's the hope that I'm going with, that Oxford gets that vaccine in the fall and that we all take it in like November and then we get to the holiday season and we're watching NBA on Christmas Day with our family. You know, and I know that's probably not realistic, but uh, I got to go with it, Harry and Trevor. I, I got to go with the optimism because the alternative is holy crap. When is well, this over? Well, I mean, what vaccine has ever been ready in under a year ever, though, Carp? Hey, it's believe just... in human ingenuity, Harry. You got to believe. Yeah, sh- sure. Okay. <laughs> um, last thing I'll say, um, and this is just for, I doubt I, this, if, if one person that this uh, is maybe will get anything from, um, that will maybe, will get anything from what I'm about, about to say. Uh don't waste your money on universities if they're just going to do online classes. Don't hmm. go to, you know, if you're if you're starting up school, if you're starting college, don't pay forty thousand dollars to go to U of I if you're going to be taking online classes this year. That's fair. I'm just going to say it. I'm saying that for every. <laughs> if, if, I mean, you are getting the same exact education online if you go to. I mean, community college. Like, yeah, pretty much. You know, you are do yeah. Parkland do. Do um do ITT Tech do Arizona State online do take a gap year just don't go to these schools that you're <laughs> going to be paying unless these schools like drastically drop their tuition there is no reason to put yourself this much in debt for what is essentially just a a shell of what the degree actually is. Well done, Harry. Trevor, what's your advice? Your parting advice wow. for the listeners as we sign off today. <laughs> um. I guess I would say, you know, in, in talking about this, if I'm actually being serious, uh, I personally think that everybody should just be able to make their own choice. Like, while I live with my grandma, so I'm not going to risk going out to a house party for no reason. That doesn't mean if you're 22 and feel perfectly healthy and don't live with your grandma, you can't. Like, go do you. But just be respectful of the fact that what you do, again, it's the cause and effect. What you do affects other people. You know, like someone at the store the other day didn't have a mask on and I saw somebody sort of, you know, not yell, but just say, hey, put your mask on. And he said, um, well, I don't think it's going to help me much. And I just wanted to say to him, well, but you're missing the point because it's not trying to help you. It's trying to help the person who lives with an old person who is behind you in line who catches it from you. You know what I mean? Like people need to understand that that it is not just them they are affecting and to try and have some empathy. And I guess that's what I would, would push for. Wow. Well done, guys. I think I I think people – I think that the uh... – the mandate and the requirements should be for people to wear gloves and not people to wear masks. That's, that's just a personal thing because well, as, far, as far as I've heard, this isn't airborne, right? It's droplets that come out of your mouth or your, when about, you sneeze. That's, that's what carries gloves, the virus. The thing about gloves, though, is – And it enters and through I your do mouth. I wear gloves, but 
you know, it, it, there's no real difference other than an added layer of protection between wearing gloves versus coming home and using Purell and washing your hands. You know yeah. what I mean? Whereas you can't like wash out your mouth. So well, Harry, you, can, like, you can walk into a grocery store and there could literally be a bucket of coronavirus and you just get your hands all up in it, but you would still have to touch your face. So, uh, um, if that I makes sense. I'm never touching my face when I'm going out and about anyway. I usually just, I mean, don't get me wrong. My nails are chewed down to the nub, but I usually do that in the privacy of my own house. But do you wash <laughs> under your nails before you bite on them? I don't have any nails to wash under, Carp. Okay. I mean, do you want to look at these things? They are pretty look nubby. Those, those yeah, are little yeah, nubs. Yeah. And you see those little, like, red marks at the top of my cuticles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's because I can't help myself. Jesus, Some people smoke. Some people dip. I can't <laughs> stop chewing my nails. Well, out of all the addictions they have, that's rather innocuous. They should have a center. This would catch so much flack, but they should have a center of a building that has confirmed coronavirus in it, and anyone who feels safe enough should just walk in there and lick everything and go home. <laughs> <laughs> all right, boys. Well, that was uh, fun as always, and what we'll do, I believe, next Sunday, we'll figure out time and all that, but we'll just do a kind of weekly uh, shoot the breeze. I would call this Gimpy Pippins, but we've been pretty consistent <laughs> with Last Dance titles, so I'll do that. Plus, it's, if anyone ever wants to search for Last Dance on Apple Podcasts, they might find the 200 level and become new fans, which, by the way, yeah. subscribe and write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any of those podcast mediums. We appreciate that. helps us on the search engines. And uh, we got Brightweiser coming up Wednesday. I got a guest to be determined on Friday, so we got a triple header this week, but a good start. So for Harry and Trevor, thank you guys. Have a good rest of your week. Eat your veggies and eat your fruits, and um, there's nothing wrong with being a guy named Gimpy Pimpins. You know, they can turn into the 50th greatest basketball player of all time. That's true. Wow. <laughs> he probably <laughs> is on the go. very low end of the top 50 players of all time, but I love Scotty. I love Gimpy Pimpins. Harry, Trevor, we'll see you guys next week. See you. All right, so that is it for this week's episode of the 200 Level. A reminder, DP Doe, 4th and Kirby, and State Farm Agent Brian Hansen. That's dpdoe.com, 4th and Kirby.com, coupon code 200 Level, and State Farm Agent Brian Hansen, brianismyguy.com. All right, we'll see you on Wednesday with Steve Breitweiser. Until next time, it is the 200 Level.